in Exodus 20, uh, God had gathered the people of Israel to himself. They were at the base of Mount Sinai, and he spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your fa- the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that you spoke to Israel and these words that you speak to us. Lord, speak to our hearts. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our souls to hear what you would say. Lord, that we may live lives that glorify and honor you, that we may come to know you more, that we may look to you and see your face. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and honoring to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Claiborne Temple is one of the most important uh, and historic places in Memphis. Uh, 1891, it was built as the home of Second Presbyterian Church here in Memphis. And in 1949, uh, they sold the church to the AME Church, African uh, Methodist Episcopalian Church. And it was a center of ministry um, and a center of the civil rights movement for many years. Actually, 1968, um, when Dr. King was here, it was a base of operations for him. And actually, the I Am a Man March, the sanitation workers' strike, um, they gathered and they started from uh, Claiborne Temple and they went out from there. Well, in the mid-1970s and beyond, uh, the congregation sadly dwindled and the building was uh, abandoned, it fell into disrepair, Uh, the ceiling was crumbling, and then if you go in there, you can see kind of along the, up close to where the, What's this area? The chancel. Where the chancel is, you can see plants literally growing in and kind of taking over um, the building from the outside. And it's sad to see this once beautiful building, this once great place of ministry, um, empty and falling apart. Well, it sat for years. It's a wonderful historic building, but it was rotting and it was unused. Now, for anyone who wanted to think about buying this building and seeing what they could do with it, um, or options or places like that, there were a few options. One is, well, you could just tear it down and turn it into apartments or a hotel. Now, thankfully, I'm guessing the city of Memphis would not have allowed that. Another option would be, okay, well, let's keep the shell of the building and we'll tear everything out and maybe turn it into a modern megachurch. Well, a third option would be to restore it to restore it back to its original beauty and to its original purpose. Now, restoration, for anybody who's tried to do that, is a very complicated and difficult option to do. But thankfully, a local group has decided that's exactly what they want to do. It's an expensive process. It's a big undertaking. But gathering money and and starting this process of fixing that building. And actually, one of the local um, churches that's part of our presbytery is called Downtown Church. It's a church plant that started a little while ago, and they are working on 
being a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-social, um, uh, like people who make different amounts of money. Man, I'm having a hard time talking today. What do you call that when, you know, different, you know, um, socioeconomic, that's the big fancy word for it, thank you. So they're doing all this work in there and they're trying to do this great work while all this building is going on. So they worship there some and then they're worshiping down the street a little bit, but it's great to see this church finally having some life breathed back into it and it's not just gonna become some trendy place of shopping, but it's actually a place of ministry and a place of the work of God going on and they're working to bring it back. Well, 3,000 years ago, God gave us the Ten Commandments and he gave it to the people of Israel. They were intended to be a firm foundation meant to direct the people of Israel of here's here's how you should live, here's how you reflect um, God and his nature, here's how you live out and work out the kingdom of God. Well, over time, the law of God was frequently misinterpreted and misused. People added human layers, people added human rules, all these things that they thought we needed to do as well. And many people lost sight of the purpose and the heart of the law and instead it was often used to impress other people, to build ourselves up and to push others down. Well, the commandment that we're gonna be studying today is the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now in John eight, there was a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law and some other folks Um, who were looking for a way to trap Jesus and his words. And they thought that they had their answer here in the seventh commandment. So listen to what happens. This is in John chapter eight, verses three through six. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now what they were saying to him was in fact true. It was accurate. The seventh commandment does forbid adultery and she was directly caught in the act of doing this. This was not hearsay, this was not rumors, nothing like that. She was caught in the act. Later on in Deuteronomy 22.22, it even outlines the punishment. If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. So that's what the law says. But remember why the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the others were doing this. They were doing this to trap Jesus. See, if Jesus said, okay, go ahead and stone her, then he would get in trouble with Rome because he is then exercising the death penalty and only only Rome can do that. If he were to say, no, let her go, it's not a big deal, then he would be throwing away the law and the people would reject him, the people would refuse to follow him. So they thought that they had him trapped. But you notice what else is happening here. Okay, think about it. So you have, who was brought before Jesus? There's a woman, right? Who else has to be part of, if you're caught in the act of adultery, you have to have two people for that, right? And then it says, so if a man is caught in the act of adultery, who needs to die? Both the man and the woman. Two people. There was only but one person brought before Jesus. So you see their intentions. You see the way that they are using the law. We only have this one person dragged in. See, these Pharisees and many others had completely lost sight of the purpose of the seventh commandment. They were using it to condemn the woman. They were using it to prop themselves up 
and they are very openly using it to trap Jesus and finally have an excuse to get rid of him. So there you have these Pharisees and other people and they have dragged this woman before Jesus and they're hoping someone's gonna die today. Maybe the woman, maybe Jesus, or maybe both. But what does Jesus say to the people? So she's, she's dragged in front of him and, and they're saying, okay, Jesus, what do you say? Did anybody remember what he said? Let you who is without sin cast the first stone. So what do they do? They drop their rocks and they start to walk away. Dumbfounded, frustrated, disappointed, and irritated. Now if the story ended there, you know, with all the people gone and Jesus said, hey, if you haven't sinned, go ahead and cast the first stone, then you could look at it and say, well, it seems like Jesus kind of ignored the seventh commandment and he may have just kind of tossed it out. But Jesus told us that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. In the imagery that we used earlier about the Claiborne Temple, you could say that he came to restore the law. Is there no one to condemn you? Then neither do I. Now go and leave your life of sin. He did not abolish a law, but he fulfilled it. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke powerful words, and he spoke words that brought out the deeper intention of God's law, but they were also challenging words like the ones he spoke last week. When he said last week, you shall not murder, it's also about hatred that we carry in our hearts. It's about the words that we speak to one another. Well, right after Jesus says these difficult words about hatred, about anger, about murder, he addresses God's commandment on adultery. So I invite you to hear now the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now usually when I think and maybe when you think of Jesus talking about sin and when I think of Jesus having very harsh words, difficult words for people, the strong words are usually reserved for the Pharisees and for other leaders. But here he says, you're guilty of adultery if you look at someone with lust. If your right hand or your right eye cause you to sin, cut off the hand, pluck out the eye. Now even if we know that that's a metaphor, even though we know Jesus is not literally saying, yes, you need to gouge out your eye, you need to cut off your hand, those are still strong words. And then he has strong words about divorce as well. See, I like the Jesus, we like the Jesus who told the hypocritical Pharisees to pound sand. But I'm not so excited when Jesus calls out my sin. And he really is calling out 
our sin. I don't think that this is hyperbole, obviously, except for the whole cutting off your hand part, but I don't think that he's just trying to give this extreme example. Remember, even though he protected the woman who was caught in adultery, when the other people wanted to condemn her, wanted to stone her to death, Jesus protected her. He also took her sin seriously. He takes our sin seriously. Jesus takes our sin seriously enough. He knows how damaging our sin is that he gave his life for us to pay for our sin. And remember some of the difficult words of Jesus. He said, if you love me, obey my commands. Now we're gonna dig deeper because I think there's a deeper issue that's going on here in addition to just calling out lust and calling out these things that draw us in. But we cannot just minimize the words that Jesus spoke. Well, going back to Israel. So after God told the Israelites in the Ten Commandments that we're not to commit adultery, Jesus showed that there was a deeper issue that was going on. It's not just about the physical act. He said it's about what is happening in your heart. Now this is an, an especially difficult issue for us today. This is a sin that is very easy to be drawn into. Not only are our hearts sinful and our eyes easily drawn to those things, we're in a time when those things are very easily accessible. Magazines, TV and computer screens, just walking around town. Images that suck us in. Even apps that you can get for your phone that, that help you to have an affair. Hollywood and Madison Avenue know what sells. But more important than that, the devil knows what grabs our attention. Now this, of course, is nothing new. It's not like this is some new creation, the fact that we have access to such things. Caesar's empire offered plenty of opportunity for sin. Rome's sexual practices would make Howard Stern blush. Jesus knew that both in the first century and in the 21st century, there would be an abundance of temptation, an abundance of things that could draw, that could draw us away, that can lead our hearts to stray. Jesus spoke strong words about adultery because he cares infinitely about marriage. That's what it comes down to. He spoke strong words about adultery because he cares infinitely about marriage. Matthew 19, four through six, Jesus laid out the design for marriage. At the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The original intention of the seventh commandment, the intention of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is to honor and to protect marriage, that it is a lifelong covenant. What God has joined together, let no one separate. That's really what it all comes down to. It is all about how much does God honor, how much does God value marriage. That is why adultery is so terrible. The marriage relationship can be a great instrument of God's work. But God knows the devastation that comes upon the couple, that comes upon the children when it is torn apart by adultery. He also knows about the damage that is done to the church. I mean, just look at the news and you see 
stories of this happening. He knows the damage that is done to our witness when we are seen as hypocritical because guess what? We are. Well, the devil also knows this. The devil knows the damage that is done to people. The devil knows the damage that is done to God's work. We see it throughout history. We see his obsession with driving a wedge between husbands and wives. Now, in Scripture, we first saw this actually with Adam and Eve. The devil convinced Eve to eat the fruit, which, they, which she then shared with Adam. And with that, sin entered the world. And what did they do? They hid from God. Genesis 3, 9 through 12. The Lord called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. From the very beginning, the devil knew that if you want to fight against the work of God, you split up the husband and the wife. You attack the marriage. You divide the two. There's another story of a marriage under attack. David and Bathsheba from 1 Samuel chapter 11. Or is that 2 Samuel? One of the Samuels. See, here we see the sin of adultery, but not only the sin of adultery, we see the sin of lust with David. So David is up on his rooftop and he sees this woman bathing. Now, we don't know exactly where she was. We don't know if she was on a rooftop and he just happened to notice her or if he was a peeping Tom, but we know that David noticed this woman bathing. Now, he could have looked the other way, but he chose not to, and here's where lust came in, and he continued to look at her, and he continued to leer at her would be the word I guess we would use today. So he sees her down there, he's staring at her, he's trying to figure it out. So he sends one of his servants and he says, hey servant, go and find out who this woman is. Servant goes, finds out who the woman is. Oh, her name is Bathsheba. By the way, she's married to Uriah the Hittite. By the way. Oh, okay, bring her to me. So he then sleeps with her and he's now formally, officially, completely committed adultery with the woman. She becomes pregnant. Then he tries to cover it up. You may have heard the story before. I know we've talked about it in here. He tries to cover it up. He brings Uriah home from war while he's supposed to be off at war with his soldiers. He brings Uriah back home and he says, hey, why don't you go home and spend some time with your wife? Uriah says, I'm not gonna do that. The other guys are out in battle. I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm not gonna go and spend time with my wife. Well, the king is frustrated and he says, no, 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 let's get, why don't you come hang out with me? He gets him blasted, he gets him drunk. Sends him back home. Okay, maybe now he'll go and sleep with his wife. Nope, doesn't sleep with his wife. Sends him back to battle and does what? He has him murdered. David was a man after God's heart. He was the author of many of the Psalms. He is the greatest king of Israel. But he failed to obey God in his marriage and he brought suffering on many others. God's desire is for us to have healthy and loving marriages where his love is reflected and through which his kingdom can grow. There are great examples of marriage in the Bible, such as Ruth and Boaz. You think of Mary and Joseph. But my favorite example is actually a very short story of Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Priscilla and Aquila in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, uh, they were a couple who were missionaries. They were teachers. They worked with Paul. I believe they were tent makers with Paul as well. Well, in Acts 18.26, 
we read this. A man named Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. This was a couple who worked together. This was a couple who ministered together. This was a couple who invited Apollos into their home and because this was a home where there was apparently not adultery happening and things were going well, God used them and God did great things. God used a husband and a wife to teach Apollos and then Apollos then went out and he shared the gospel in other places as well. Marriage can be a great place of ministry but it can also come under attack. God created and blessed the marriage relationship. And he calls us to protect it and to honor it. Back in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What God is doing there is to tell us, is telling us to get rid of the things that cause us to stumble. So Jesus says, gouge out your right eye, cut off your right hand. Now, that is not because the right hand or the right eye is inherently sinful. Neither one of our hands, neither one of our eyes are inherently sinful. But sometimes we need to sacrifice those good things in our life or even just those normal everyday things in our life if they are drawing us away, if they are causing us to sin. It's kind of like as they are restoring the Claiborne Temple or as you do any kind of a restoration project. Sometimes when you are trying to get rid of the rotting pieces of lumber, if you look at this picture here, this is part way in. So you can see like there's the support beams holding things up. But if you look up at the ceiling, um, there's a whole lot of the ceiling that's exposed. If you look at an older part of the ceiling, an old, older picture of, of the ceiling, there was not all of that exposed. So it's not that every single part of the ceiling had fallen down, but there are times when you need to rip down the other parts around it so that you can make a firmer, stronger foundation. There are times in our life when there are things that are not inherently wrong, that are not inherently sinful, that we just need to get rid of and say, I need to replace these things because when I am there, it can cause me to sin. I remember talking to a pastor one time and he was sharing about um, uh, a gentleman that he was counseling, and um, this man was an alcoholic, and he was trying to help the man through his alcoholism, and the man really wanted to no longer live that kind of a life, and he said, well, you know, every day when I go home from work, I just can't stop myself, and, and I have to stop in at the liquor store, and I buy whatever it is, wine or liquor, whatever it might be, and he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. When you are driving home from work, don't drive past the liquor store. Go another way, it's gonna take you way far out of the way, but you're not gonna drive past it. He cut off his right hand, even though it would have made a whole lot more sense just to drive straight home and go straight past that liquor store. There's nothing wrong with the road that he drove down, but he said, I'm gonna go around it this time. But again, we're reminded that God's call on our lives is not simply to avoid sin. God's call on our lives is to choose to obey him, to choose to be faithful, to choose to bless others. It's not enough to not destroy our marriages. God is actually calling us to honor our spouses, 
to love them, to honor our marriage. The devil does tremendous damage through adultery, but he also works through bitterness and hollow marriages. See, we look at our, at our divorce rate now, and there's different numbers. People say we're at a 50% divorce rate. Don't know if that's actually true. It seems like it's one of those numbers that somebody kind of made up and everybody just believed. But we have a tremendously high divorce rate in our nation, in our world. And then we can look back at the old days and we say, well, you know, people didn't used to get divorced back in the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever it may have been. But how many of those marriages did people stay together just because well, it's what you do, you don't get divorced. But they weren't happy marriages, they weren't loving marriages, they weren't marriages that honored God. Now, I'm not telling you, well, hey, if you're one of, part of one of those, then oh well. But it's saying our call is not only to avoid adultery and not only to avoid sin, but our call is to actually love our spouse in the way that God has called us to love our spouse. Ephesians 5.25, this is a passage that my mentor shared with me many, many times. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God's command to me is, Jeff, you do not commit adultery. Jeff, you do not look at these things. Jeff, you do not linger on these people. But his call to me is to love my wife, to pray for her, to give myself up for her. God's desire is not just to end divorce and not just to end adultery, but it is to build up and shore up and support and honor marriage. Now, as we're talking about this, as we're thinking through this, as we are looking at this concept of marriage, I have to recognize the fact that not every single person in this room is married. So it's easy to just kind of click off and go like, okay, well, that, isn't, that doesn't really apply to me. But do you remember who wrote the book of Ephesians? Anybody? Paul, right? And what was Paul's wife's name? Trick question, he wasn't married, all right? So Paul did all this great work to build up marriage and to say, yes, marriage is of vital importance and he's praying for people, he's doing all these things, but he didn't have a wife of his own. So Paul should have just said, eh, I have no input. But no, he does. You do. When I officiate at a wedding, one of the elements that I like to include I don't always get to, but when, but, but when I can, I enjoy it. Um, in addition to the vows that the couple takes, I also like to ask if there's a way that we can have the congregation take a vow as well. See, now, when, when we are having a baptism here, if you remember, um, whether it is for a baby or whether it is for an adult, um, we have um, somebody take vows saying, you know, affirming their faith in Jesus Christ. But then we also have the congregation stand and we say vows together as well, right? And we say, I'm going to support, we are going to support this person as they grow in faith. Whether that is an infant, whether that is an adult, it is a vow that we take saying, we are going to support this, we are going to pray for this person. I ask people to do something similar to that in a wedding. You are not just watching what's happening, you're not just here to be a happy face and moral support. You are, you are to continue to support them. So our call in regards to marriage, all of us, whether you are married or single, is to honor and support marriage. Sometimes when, when you're friends with somebody and, and they are married, sometimes they will go down that path of the ball and chain and my idiot husband and all that kind of stuff and you kind of joke along with it or you just feed into all that kind of stuff. Well, our call is to not do that. 
Our call is to actually support, our call is to lift up. Now, you are absolutely encouraged to listen to them, to support them, to care for them, but also to pray for them, to not pass along gossip about a failing marriage. Our call, all of our call, is to encourage them, is to pray for them, is to honor marriage. God gave the seventh commandment and Jesus gave the difficult words in the Sermon on the Mount because he cares about marriage, because he wants to honor it and strengthen it. But see, here's, here's the key though. God doesn't just care about the institution of marriage. God cares about your marriage. God cares about my marriage. And he invites us to join him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of marriage. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you spoke difficult words to us. There's times when we need to hear those rough words that challenge us, that sting, that dig deep. Lord, help us to be faithful to you above all. Help us to be faithful to our spouse. Lord, help us to be faithful to one another, whether we are married or not. Lord, help us to honor marriage because you created it, you blessed it, you have given it to us. Lord, help us to not be a stumbling block, but help us to build one another up. Lord, help us to pray. Help us to remember you. Again, Lord, we thank you for the many gifts you've given to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.